Well, one of the things that we're doing differently this morning, at least from my vantage point, is we're moving a little bit from biblical exegesis to systematic theology. Um, so, uh, unfortunately, this is one of those messages, if you're keeping notes, just good luck. Uh, I, I, I'm almost one of those, I'll give you 50 bucks if you can keep up, uh, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but we are dealing with the idea of the Christian conscience. Our primary text is Romans chapter 13, verse 5, and we've been there before. We've been there for the last three weeks, but I'm also going to take us around to some other texts that I believe embody the element of conscience, as Romans talks about it, and try to build a framework for how we're to live in the world. I'm going to speak specifically on texts that talk about the workplace, uh, but it really is true that any of the, the principles we're gonna talk about and the truths really would apply in any context in which we're living under some kind of group that has an authority structure. So it doesn't matter whether it's education or the government, a club, a sporting event, if you belong to any kind of group, they'll have people who are organizing it who set up rules and regulations on how that group is to operate and these truths can be transferred into any context like that. So it doesn't matter whether it's your community association or whether it's a, a hobby group that you belong to or talk to someone who went golfing, there's rules that apply there as well. And uh, the, the truths that we're talking about I think are vital for any kind of sense we're responding to authority that we're under. The, the text that I want to read for you is not only Romans 13.5, but I want to take you to at least two others, and we'll walk through them. So it'll feel like three separate messages, but they're all tied to the reality of conscience. Romans 13.5 says, Therefore, one must be in subjection, and he's talking about governing authorities, not only to avoid God's wrath, because he's indicated in, his, in the verses previously that they are God's instrument, they exist at God's pleasure, to govern over groups of people uh, for their good, but also for the sake of conscience. The other text that I want to read just before we get into this is Colossians chapter 3. He's talking about the workplace, and he's speaking about bondservants and masters, but clearly the analogical comparison here is when you are in a workplace environment. You, they're not masters so much, but bosses. We are employees, operate very similar to the nature of what existed back then in some fashion. Bondservants obey in everything those who are your earthly members, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily or work out of your heart as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master who is in heaven. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 18, uh, also addresses this issue. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it or punished, you endure it. But if uh, when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. As we've come through COVID, there has been a, an interesting shift in the workplace. Obviously, most uh, companies had given permission to, for their employees to work from home because there was no choice, but now after a year and a half, everyone's gotten comfortable with it. 
And so one of the things that has developed is that there has been a mass exodus from the workplace where people have actually quit their jobs. Most of it's fallen from the hospitality industry, restaurants and those kinds of things, where people are looking for a better context to make more money. But they're not the only ones. Uh, I read about a Jonathan Calabero who uh, discovered last year at 27 that his hair was thinning, he was stressed out, and he was a software developer, and realized in his mind that his life was flying by and he wasn't sure that he was using his time wisely. Uh, as it turns out, he decided that he was envisioning his life differently because he now felt the release of all the stress and the chaos that he was under. And so he decided to take a different track. Uh, he began uh, after about 10 months when he was, uh, they were sent home. The office started calling people back. He made a, an offer to say, I want to keep working from home, and he continued to do it. Uh, he he uh, didn't want to do the 45-minute commute to work. He actually got rid of his car. He started looking for another job at one point and had something that had the flexibility so he could spend more time with his family and more time pursuing the pursuit of happiness, as it were. I think what COVID has done is helped us realize that sometimes in our life we have priorities that are mixed up, and there are some good things that help us realize that maybe we're on a pathway that is so frenetic and so busy that we're not even, we're not even stopping long enough to enjoy our life. The other danger, however, in this is that COVID is now possibly could make people much more selfish and withdrawn that I don't have to go and meet with people. I, I can stay at home and do my own thing and I can set my own hours and, and now I don't need the office. I don't need other people. I can live, hum just sort of huddle around my family. We can set our own parameters. We've got the flexibility to do our own thing. Life is good because I don't have to bother with people. And, and so there's a bit of a dilemma and as Christians, the question comes is, wow, what do we do? Do, do I advocate staying home? Do I go back into the workplace? Do I change jobs? What does my conscience say in terms of really honoring God in the midst of such opportunities or obstacles like that? And there's obviously nothing wrong with working from home. There's nothing wrong with being in the office. But the question is, regardless of what we do, what does God call us to? What is, what is a God-given, godly conscience is, provokes us to do in terms of living out our Christian life? Well, we remember last time we talked about defining conscience. It has three components to it, and I want to just remind you of it. One is the idea of just being self-aware of your own existence. I, I have a, a reality check that I am who I am. I'm an individual, and uh, it's a strange thing to think that I'm aware of my own existence, as you would be. The second one is a sense of right and wrong in its most basic fundamental aspects, is that uh, even Romans chapter 2 tells us that unbelievers, those who don't want anything to do with God, are really individuals who because of what I call the image of God and this intrinsic revelation that's embedded in it, have a sense of right and wrong and that their thoughts can condemn or affirm the things that they're thinking or contemplating. But for us as Christians, there is a divine moral compass that comes when I step into relationship with Christ. He gives me a new nature, as it were. He creates a, a new person and cleanses us. And then because of his word and the indwelling spirit that he gives to those who put faith and trust in him, we have now a conscience that's to be informed by the, the revelation of God and the presence of his spirit in us. 
And so even if we are a good person before we come to Christ, we are now given a conscience that's informed to live on a completely different framework than even good people who don't know Jesus. And so as we step into this idea of conscience, this becomes kind of the challenge. What should this look like as I'm living under any authority, but especially in terms of the workplace? Well, let me just mention a couple principles that I think are important to share related to conscience. One is the problem of an undeveloped conscience. This is kind of like a little red signal light that when something happens around me, I get this little tweak inside of me that says something's off. We might feel it very differently amongst ourselves, but there's a situation that something feels wrong. It might be in the workplace, it might be in relationships, people might say something uh, that may seem to contradict uh, what they told me before. There might be something going on in the office that just doesn't feel right or it doesn't quite, something's off. Um, it's disturbing, but I can't put my finger on it. It may be something that rubs me the wrong way or it's something doesn't add up in my thinking. And, and so conscience in some ways is this little warning light that something doesn't mesh with my own reality of right and wrong or my values or my beliefs. But the problem with an undeveloped conscience is that's, that's about all it does. And in the culture that we're in, it's very easy for us to ignore that. Especially as Christians, we can feel that. You, you, someone can preach a great message and we can feel something tweaking inside of me. Maybe not so much something wrong morally, but the Spirit of God can prod us to say, hey, this applies to you. You need to start making changes to apply this to your life. But, you know, we do typical things like, well, Lord, let me pray about it and I'll see if you're right. And often we have learned the habit of ignoring that signal light because I'm too busy, it's too hectic, it's not a big deal, what difference does it make anyway? And so we've taught ourselves at times to ignore the, our conscience. Not in the big things, not in the obvious things, but a lot of times in the little ways that the Spirit of God tries to deal with us. On the other side of the coin, you've got people that in some respects uh, have a conscience that's like lit on fire all the time. They tend to be bothered by everything. They see something on the news and they can't sleep at night because their whole head is wrapped around this problem. Uh, their spouse or their kids will do something and they think that I'm a failure as a parent and they will lose sleep for a week. They'll have somebody say something to them and they just can't resist sharing their opinions, trying to fix the situation or fix people. Because for them, not only is everything wrong, but everyone's wrong, and they're going to absolutely take the responsibility to fix everybody and everything whether you want them to fix it or not. And so you've got some people's conscience that are like lit up like a Christmas tree all the time, and they're not ashamed to let you know it. Now, the question is, how do we deal with it? Well, the other element of the principle is the, the, the participation of a mature conscience. I mean, the whole scripture say when we come to Christ, we compares us a little bit like to infants. Just because we accept Jesus into our life and receive him as our savior for the forgiveness of sins and we become children of God, doesn't mean we're instantly mature. The Christian life is a lot like physical life. When a person comes to Christ, even if they're 30 years old, they are starting over and they're learning a whole new way of life. They're, they're now setting aside beliefs that they've had their entire life and they're starting to say, wow, 
I gotta, I'm, the, God's word says that I have to believe in different ways than I've learned, or my value systems are one of the key things. I used to value things that aren't healthy for me anymore. I mean, you look at the things of the flesh and it's selfishness and greed and gossip and causing divisions. Some people master those things when they're not a believer. Then they have to learn to master a different way of life and it takes time. Person doesn't instantly mature. But a mature conscience is, gives directions to making choices in the face of conflicting value systems. And, and just to make sure that that isn't automatic, there are things that we'll look at here as we wander through this to say, just because you're a Christian and have lots of head knowledge about Bible doesn't mean you're a mature Christian. There's lots of people who have incredible knowledge of the scriptures, but are as immature as a five-year-old. Because just because we know stuff doesn't mean we've become mature in learning how to live by it. The third aspect is the, the power of a godly conscience. See, believers and unbelievers can not only have an untrained conscience or an immature conscience, they can also have a mature conscience. There's lots of unbelievers who are really mature. They have a sense of right and wrong based on, on their own value system, and they make good choices. They avoid big issues in the world so that they don't bring self-destruction upon their life. And sometimes that's about choice, sometimes it's about the flesh, but for us as believers, the idea is I don't make up my own mind about my value system. God is the one who's to retrain my conscience to listen to the voice of God and understand the scriptures so that that's what informs my morality and my choices. And, and if you haven't lived very long as a, as a Christian, the problem, you don't, it's, that's a difficult thing because we're always being pressed to adopt this and believe this. We, we can do it with all kinds of subjects. Now there's one other one that I didn't put in here, but I'll at least mention it. First Timothy 4, 1 through 3, talks about that in the latter times, as time goes on, and we keep seeing it go on, that there's gonna be people that will depart from the faith and being deceived, uh, they're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, and through insincerity and uh, liars, their conscience will be seared. And so you might say, what does that look? Well, they're not sociopaths going around killing people. It talks about they're forbidding marriage and, and talking about abstaining from foods. And I can get where you get that. I can see where you could fall into that. Our world is taking marriage and destroying it, so the easiest thing is we'll just get rid of marriage altogether and we don't have to worry about it. But that's not biblical. That's not what God created us to be in many ways. And so the idea of conscience can be influenced and shaped by a lot of different things. It is both subjective and objective, but for the Christian, the more we can adopt what God says is valuable and what we're to believe and what his priorities are, the better uh, strengthened we are to make decisions in a lost world. And so it becomes a challenge for us to do that. Now, let me make a couple of statements. I've been wrestling with this statement for a while, but here's what the challenge is. All Christians believe many spiritual truths about our relationship with God, but fewer develop spiritual convictions about our responsibilities before God. See, I think one of the dangers is we believe lots of stuff, but if you never develop a convictions about some kind of moral issue, at least in how you're supposed to live, 
and you haven't figured it out, when you get put in that situation and then you try to figure it out, you're gonna go down like a ship sinking in the ocean. Because I haven't formed a conviction about it and there's too many voices pushing in on us and we're almost always gonna cave in. And so that's one of the dangers is that we believe lots of things but we often don't develop convictions about hardly anything. And so the question that I want to ask you this morning is do you understand your convictions built on a conscience that is informed by God? Not by your personal preference, not by your experience, but by the word of God and the working of the spirit of God, do you have convictions about certain things? And we're living in a world where convictions are becoming more and more critical and yet we're scared to do them. Because we're afraid if I develop convictions, then it's a line in the sand, and then what do I do? I don't want to offend people. I don't want to be disruptive. I don't want to be legalistic or judgmental. So how do I develop convictions and yet not become those things? Uh, I uh, have interacted, and I love interacting with my kids. We talk a lot about these different things, and I, uh, but I love talking to people of different generations. So I had a conversation one time with someone about sharing their faith and they were saying like you know me I grew up in the age where yeah I have like four different ways I can share the gospel I can use a one verse bridge I can use peace to steps with God I, I, I can ad hoc a lot of things because I've learned different ways and systems to do it and I asked this person I said what do you do well I don't I don't have any system I said well how do you share your faith and they go well I just sort of see how they're talking and I sort of ad hoc it so to speak I said, well, how do you ad hoc it if you don't have anything you know what to say? And they said, well, I just let God give me the right words. And, of course, then I got into my evil twin mode. And I said, so what happens when God doesn't give you anything to say? Then what do you do? Well, they weren't sure other than, I guess, we just stopped talking, I guess. But the, but the, the question is, is that some people operate that way. It's not wrong, you see it several places in the scriptures, for instance, Mark 13, 11 and Luke 12, Jesus says, hey, when they bring you before the Gentile courts and they're grilling you, don't worry about preparing anything, God, the Spirit of God will give you the right words to say. And so, that's not necessarily a bad thing unless it's your standing operating procedure. If you never study the scriptures, you never grapple with truth, you never struggle with how truth is to affect the way you live and you go through the discipline of trying to think about truth and allow God to teach you what this means in terms of life, then you're always gonna be ad hocing it and I know most people who don't share the gospels because I don't know if I know all the answers. Well, if you don't study them and try to figure out what that looks like in real life, then how are you gonna communicate those answers if you never study to figure out what those answers are? Well, God may at times give us the right words to speak in situations. I've had that happen to me. I I was gonna talk to a a coworker and I was really annoyed at them because they'd done some stuff that I thought was really bad. And I had one line of thinking and as soon as I sat in the chair, God just went, here's what you need to ask them. And so we went on a completely different track and it worked out way better than I know it was going to. But the idea here is that when we think about this truth and and honing our conscience, I want to remind you of what Hebrews tells us. Hebrews says this, for by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. 
You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child, or she is a child. But solid food is for the mature, and listen to this, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And and you can take a posture that, well, listen, in the moment, I'm just hoping God will give it to me. Not only are you making yourself more vulnerable, but you're likely to go up in flames. And I I wanna advocate for this in the sense of learning How do I really study and know God's word? If you never pick this thing up, you're never going to train your senses to know the difference between good and evil. I mean, there's enough stuff on social media that you can get 3,000 answers to two questions. And you're gonna go, "Ah, I don't know which one of these to adopt. There's something about doing your own study and developing your convictions based on how the Spirit of God teaches you what truth says, clearly in the context of interacting with other believers, but there's, a lot of pe- there's so many people that just want to skip that step and go, yeah, I'm just, I'm just hoping God will just magically drop an answer on me. And I want to simply suggest to you that I, in all good conscience, I'm not sure that's the way God wants us to live in the world. And, and so as we, we the, the first element of this is do you love these scriptures? Are you bathing your heart and your conscience and your mind and your spirit and your emotions through the truths of this word and understanding how it relates to life? Because Hebrews tells us very clearly, hey, I can fill my head up with all the information in, my, in the world, but if I'm not practicing truth, I'm never going to hone my conscience to understand the difference and and to have the power of the discernment to know what's right or wrong. Now, you're wondering when I'm going to get to the workplace. Well, you know, you need some prep time before you get there, right? Only have 10 minutes. All right. Colossians chapter 3. How does a Christian conscience operate in the world? Bond servants obey everything Uh, Obey in everything those who are your earthly matters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance of the reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So let me flip it around just so you understand what I believe is a critical principle for Christians if they're going to live according to a godly conscience. The most insincere Christian in the world is one who has an attitude in the workplace that I'm simply there to do what the boss says, not to get into any trouble, not to cause any problems, and I'm simply there to pull a paycheck. Now, I know that doesn't apply to anybody here, um, but it's really easy to get into a mode that, hey, I sort of like my job, I don't like my job, I have to have a job, whether it's part-time or full-time, whether you think it's a career or simply a job, I think one of the things that has crippled the Christian community is Christians who go into the workplace and do poor, half-hearted work and dishonor Christ by doing a sloppy job and then complaining to the, the boss that they don't like working there. And if I choose to accept a job anywhere 
And it doesn't matter if I'm getting paid for it or I'm volunteering at some organization. The most insincere Christian is this there to get it done, and that's it. Now, does that sound harsh? Okay, a little bit. But, but look at what's in this text. If we're going to live as, as Christians whose conscience is informed by godliness and by the presence of Christ, look at the words that are used here. If we're going to be sincerity of heart, I mean, the whole idea of being sincere is this idea that I have a, a purpose. And, it's, and obviously it rises above just doing the job and pleasing the boss and pulling a paycheck. Sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord, do your work heartily as for the Lord, you are serving the Lord Christ. I don't care if you hate the job or you love the job. I don't care if you're cleaning toilets or you're the president of a corporation. The Christian is called in in his conscience to say, I'm here to serve Christ. I'm going to do my work from the heart. I'm going to do the best job I can because I have a greater purpose than just pulling a paycheck. And I think you could transfer this to any situation you're in. Education, volunteerism. The word sincere is interesting. It's the quality of sincerity is an expression of singleness of purpose or motivation. So if Paul writes that, a sin- that sincerity of heart begins by fearing the Lord, then I can't be sincere unless my motivation is that I'm doing this out of fear of the Lord. It talks about personal integrity expressed in word or action. I had to learn this myself. In fact, I cheat because I live in a Christian organization. But every once in a while, we can all rub shoulders with one another. But let me, let me try to propose to you some things and then try to illustrate it. First of all, the practice of Christian conscience is that sincere Christians are motivated by Christ, not the work itself. Now, you want to do something you love. I don't think that's a problem. That's not the issue. But how many of you, and you don't have to show your hands unless you really want to feel exuberant today. How many of you are doing the jobs that you dreamed about when you were a kid? You know? I'm going to be a doctor. I'm going to be an astronaut. I'm going to be, you know, a cowboy. I don't know. Whatever, whatever, you've, whatever turned your crank. How many of you are doing the jobs that you dreamed about as a kid? Yeah. I dreamed about being a, a f- professional golfer. That's nah, not going to happen. Me and my dad had a difference of opinion about that. <laughs> actually, he didn't. He was actually very encouraging about it. I just misinterpreted stuff. But then we get up through high school, and then we go to college, and then, you know, one of the problems for most college students is, yes, and what are you going to do? Well, it's great if you say, hey, I'm going into this profession, I'm going into this discipline. That's great, but it's amazing how many people go, I don't know. It's hard. They don't don't know what they want to do. But then when you get to the end of graduation, so many people graduate, and then they end up in a job that has nothing to do with their degree. So either they got, they got it misfired at the front end or they weren't able to find a job so they had to jump into another job that's not ideal, but I gotta have a job. 
So all of us are dealing with circumstances at times that it's kind of like, well, I like the job, I don't love the job, I hate the job, but I, I, gotta, I gotta do something because I gotta provide for me and my family. I gotta do something. I mean, statistics would tell, people, tell us that most people are in jobs they hate or strongly dislike, but they gotta do something. So if you're looking for work to bring happiness and peace to your life, it's probably not gonna happen for most people. But sincere Christians serve Christ, not just their human boss. And sincere Christians learn how to put their whole heart into their work to honor the Lord, not just to please people. So if you're in a job and you're doing it and motivated just because, well, I'll do it just to get the boss off my back, isn't healthy. I don't care how you cut it. I mean, even you take all the Christian elements out of it, boy, you're in a job you hate and all you're doing is doing it to exist because I've got nothing else to go to. That's painful. So how do we address that kind of issue? Well, the fourth element of this is God's divine purpose and his kingdom and righteousness needs to be the motivation for why I work. Now, this is not saying, well, I'm a Christian, therefore, you know, every, everybody here knows I'm a Christian because I go to church, and that's, your, that's the sum total of the power of your influence. I mean, Matthew 6 tells us that the Gentiles have mastered the ability to go after stuff, food, clothing, shelter, They've mastered that. They build massive houses. They have riches galore. They've mastered that. And Jesus said, listen, that's not what I want you to shape your life. Whether it's the workplace or any other place, what needs to shape our life is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. It piggybacks on the very thing that Paul said in Colossians. And if we're to do our work not just to avoid bad stuff and being punished and disciplined because we're poor workers, and we're supposed to do it with a conscience, and I would suggest a clear conscience with God, then this is what he calls us to. Now, how do you learn this? I I remember when I was working on the railways, we were down in in Calgary, and I was doing a summer job, and they had to unload boxcars that would come in, so I went down. And uh, I did that for the summer. Had a boss that I really did not like at all. Uh, He was a yeller. Now, he worked like a fiend when he got out there and did things, but he, he was always barking and yelling at people, and I got down there and went, wow, this was a huge mistake. I, I really, I can't stand people who just bully other people just to try to motivate them. I mean, it might work in the sports world, it works very poorly everywhere else, in my opinion. And I thought, I'm gonna do this for the summer, it was good pay, but I'm kinda like, you sort of get in this thing, is, is this really worth it? So what I had to do is teach myself that when the boss came out and did his yelling, here's the way I taught myself. It may be a bit cheesy, but this is the way I did it. I literally said, when he finished yelling and disappeared, and everybody was standing around kind of awkward, like, what do we do now, other than we better get our tails going and get this thing done, or he'll come out and yell at us again. What I learned to do is I kind of went, what if Jesus suddenly physically appeared beside me and said, listen, I know your boss, I get him. What I want you to do is I want you to do this job as if you're doing it for me. So you need to not do it or, or, or do it just because he's ranting and raving. What I want you to do is I want you to put your whole, and I memorized this text, I, I sort of pictured Jesus standing beside me saying, I want you to do this to honor me. I'm not gonna try to find out what's wrong. I want you to do it so that I'm honored by the work that you put into this. 
and it didn't matter whether I was cleaning the toilets or a boxcar or whatever, when I framed this in the idea that Jesus was the one actually asking me to serve him, regardless of what it is I was doing, it changed my whole attitude in terms of doing the work. And I started to learn this idea that, wow, there's something far more important than just getting the best paying job for the summer so I can go to school. There's something far more important than getting the perfect environment because there's no such thing and there's always going to be someone who's going to be a pain in the neck that makes your life miserable. And so as I learned to do this, I literally, every time I was feeling irritated and wanted to complain, all of a sudden it was like Jesus appeared beside me and he's kind of like, okay, yeah, right, I get it. And if Jesus isn't our motivation in the workplace, then you're just left to your own devices. And I I would dare say that the Christian testimony, the nature of the gospel has been ruined by more Christians who spend time complaining and whining about their job to other workers than almost any other context we have in in our context, in our life. So what are we supposed to do? Well, some people feel uncomfortable work, they can quit and go find another job. Sometimes that's necessary. But in this particular text, 1 Peter tells us this, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. I'll explain that in a minute. For this is a gracious thing when, the, uh, in the, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He's talking about masters and slaves, what we would parallel analogically to the workplace where I'm working. For what credit is it if you sin and are beaten for it and you endure? <laughs> Remember when I was a kid, my dad actually used to spank us with a belt. We'd step out of line, mouth off to our mom, and she'd go like, you wait till your dad gets home. I'm kind of like, oh, He'd come home, he'd strip us down, he'd take a belt and smack us about four times. And we endured it, we weren't going to give in to that at all. We gritted our teeth, we weren't going to cry, well, until he walked out of the room, and then we bawled like babies, but anyway. But we were going to endure that, because this was unfair. We didn't, what we did wasn't really that wrong in mouthing off to mom. I wasn't old enough to couch it into the spiritualized, I'm being persecuted. <laughs> right? Well, that's, that's our version now. Like, we do something knuckleheaded and we get disciplined for it. <gasps> I'm being persecuted for my faith. Like, really? Are we that insecure that, like, when we do something wrong, it's everybody else's fault? Well, that's what, we, that's what the culture says. Nobody wants to take responsibility for anything. It's interesting that the word good is just basically the word good. The word unjust is the word we get for scoliosis. So he's saying, if you've got bosses that are really bent out of shape, so to speak, emotionally, attitude-wise, because masters and slaves didn't have a choice down here in New Testament times. They were, they were bought and owned like property, so they could get somebody who was a complete lunatic, and they, had to, they didn't have a choice to go and quit and go find another job. And so he's saying, listen, you need to submit to them with all respect. Why? Because if you endure their unjust behavior and their attitude, then God looks at you and his, he, God is pleased with the person who knows how to not lash back or complain or take them to court or whatever. Those things at times need to happen. 
But the idea is, if you bear up under this justly and you're doing the right things, this isn't because you've broken the policies or the rules or whatever, but this becomes more of a personality and value system, then God's pleased with that. Now, I tell you, that's not the demeanor of of the workplace in America. They got more rules and policies, both from the federal level right down to company level, to just about choke a horse. But the idea is, is that there are all kinds of things that we have to deal with, and it's not just the rules of the company. We have to do with attitude and beliefs and values and priorities on both sides. What are people motivated by? What's their worldview and culture? But I just want to remind you that if we do something wrong out there and we get disciplined for it, we deserve it. And so the question is, how do you sort of put this together? Well, if you do what's good, if you do what's right, and you still catch flack, what does that mean? Well, that's usually personality and cultural stuff. I mean, we don't have time to deal with all of it, but the idea is, is that a lot of the conflicts have to do with attitude and personalities. And sometimes... We can, we, can, we can get really conflicted in the workplace because we can't stand this person. This person's a bully. I like this individual. My boss is an idiot. But the statement says, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in God's sight and he's pleased. He will reward you for that. Now, let me <laughs> try to speed it up. If I'm in a workplace and I see some people bullying one of the workers and I stand up for them because my value system is built that every person has, deserves respect because they're created in the image of God, I don't have to be overtly spiritualized about it. I, I just go to their rescue, but I may catch flack from other people because I'm helping someone who's being bullied. So that's one aspect of it. But one of the things that's become very obvious this month, being that it's Pride Month, is that a lot of companies are really upticking their advertising and their, their corporate culture to promote everything about Pride Month. And I've heard different stories where people are going around trying to get all the employees to jump on board with, like, we've got we to support Pride Month. And you're sitting there as a Christian going like, hmm. And I wish we had the time here to, to speak to all these issues, but the point is, if you don't have a well-defined sense of conscience in what is good as far as God is concerned, that might be really, really problematic. Now, the question of how you deal with it is a whole other story. I mean, it could be as simple as saying, hey, listen, you know, appreciate the offer, no thanks, and they leave you alone. But it may not look like that either. It might be a constant sense of pressure, like this is what the company's doing and you need to get on board with this. And the text seems to indicate that if our consciences are rooted deeply in the scriptures and I've formed that out in my mind, then the question becomes, do I have the wherewithal to continue to do good, to stand by my convictions while I'm not forcing it on everyone else, but I'm making my own choices and I'm willing to live with the consequences of that? 
And then we run into a huge dilemma because it's like, I need this job. wonder if I get fired because I'm not going along with what's going on. Let me skip a couple here just to kind of finish off because I obviously over time. First of all, Christians may suffer unjustly because they're doing what is good and right. Christians' goodness is ultimately anchored to our consciousness towards God, not the culture. There are times that cultural values may overlap with the same thing. If I see someone being bullied, nobody likes that, so I can, we can share that in common and I can rise to that occasion and deal with it without pulling out a spiritual card, but I'm motivated by my conscience in relationship to God. Because if it isn't, then you're, you're almost forced to adopt the culture of the company if you haven't thought this through. And so the question then becomes, and let me try to frame it this way, the workplace nor the culture is the source of our convictions. They are not the source of our happiness or our satisfaction in life, regardless of how much we think we need them. If we fail to develop convictions, we are more vulnerable for the pressure of the workplace or the culture to compromise our own beliefs. So, let me frame it, two sides of the same coin. So don't stop listening until I get to the other side of the coin. A person who claims to be a Christian but refuses to submit to human authorities for as a general principle is rejecting God's authority. Remember, as a general principle, not, not absolutely. It's never an absolute. If you find a person who is consistently unwilling to submit to human authorities, I will, claim, I will suggest to you that that person will also struggle living under God's authority as an individual. It's the same principle in 1 John 4. How can I say I love God if I hate my brother? If I, if I can't live under human authority, then I will show you a person who really doesn't live under God's authority. They're calling the shots because they can't live under any authority. But the other side of the coin is this. Any Christian who simply goes along with human authorities, especially in the workplace but other places, and never runs into situations where they have to suffer for, for not going along with the status quo is probably not living out a sincere faith In the, in the context of the workplace. Christians who do not find their conscience bothered by the things going on in our culture or in companies and many of our authority structures either does not care or deliberately isn't paying attention. What's the solution to that? Well, I will propose to you, and I, we don't have time to look at it this morning, but the Apostle Paul made a similar statement in 1 Corinthians 9. He says, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. To those who are without the law, I become as one who doesn't have the law, but yet never without the law of Christ. And if your purpose in even having a job or being part of a group is the greater mission of the gospel, then you have a divine purpose that I'm not going to start spitfighting over minor things that aren't the real issue but I'm going to live in a way that I'm going to do the right thing as God calls me to do, even if I'm going to catch flack for it or face the consequence of it, and yet at the same time be the best 
employee I possibly can in any situation so that we can cast to shame the, the foolishness of those who would criticize us. Sounds pretty easy, doesn't it? Well, I commend it to you as one of those things that our conscience is vitally important wherever we're living, in the workplace, at the store, in the places that we work. And I want to encourage you that, yeah, at times God just gives us the right answer at the right time and the right course of action. But if you don't personally develop a conscience that's rooted in the truth of God's word and his righteousness, and you're not grappling with these truths in terms of how am I respond in certain situations, we're just making ourselves extremely more vulnerable rather than powerfully impacting the culture and the people that we live with. Pray with me.